This is Kick-Ass News. I'm Ben Mathis. What is technology doing to us? How does it affect our ability to work, to be present, to connect to one another? Podcaster Aliyah Tavakolian wonders about these things all the time, and tech journalist Bob Sullivan has spent his life finding the answers. Their new podcast, So Bob, is your opportunity to ask, So Bob, how can I live a better digital life? Follow So Bob on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. And now, on with the show. Hi. I'm Ben Mathis. Welcome to Kick-Ass News. It can easily be argued that no one in history has had a greater or more enduring cultural and artistic influence than the poet, playwright, and sometimes actor William Shakespeare. Sales of Shakespeare's plays and sonnets have sold more than 4 billion copies and been translated into every major language, making him the most popular author of all time. His 39 plays, including Hamlet, Macbeth, Midsummer Night's Dream, King Lear, Othello, and Romeo and Juliet, just to name a few, have been adapted into 420 films and television programs, more than the works of any other writer. His legacy not only endures across all mediums and technologies, but it thrives. And perhaps no one has a greater appreciation for the genius of William Shakespeare than actor and director Sir Kenneth Branagh. From the time he hitchhiked to Shakespeare's birthplace at age 16, to becoming the youngest actor at the Royal Shakespeare Company ever to play Henry V at age 23, to receiving Oscar nominations for acting and directing his acclaimed film adaptation of Henry V just a few years later. Kenneth Branagh is one of the all-time greatest Shakespearean actors, ranking alongside Laurence Olivier and John Gielgud, and he's the reigning keeper of the flame, having staged and starred in dozens of Shakespeare's productions and brought six of Shakespeare's greatest works to the big screen. Indeed, Branagh would be the first to admit that he owes his career to the man known as the Bard of Avon, and now he says he wanted to express his thanks with a new film about the last three years of Shakespeare's life, titled All is True. He directed, produced, and starred in the film that opens in theaters May 10th, just a few days after Shakespeare's 455th birthday. And on today's podcast, Sir Kenneth Branagh opens up about his lifelong fascination with this literary genius and what it was like to step into the shoes of his hero. He reveals why he chose to focus his film on the years following Shakespeare's retirement from the theater, why Shakespeare's return to Stratford-on-Avon might not have been the homecoming he expected, and how a gardening project might have helped him cope with the loss of his only son. Branagh discusses the fact and fiction of Shakespeare's life and why he wasn't afraid to deviate from accepted biography and embrace the mystery around the man. He talks about teaming up with writer Ben Elton, the creator of a British sitcom about Shakespeare, how he achieved a painterly look for the film by foregoing modern digital graphics in favor of traditional matte painting, and the remarkable makeup that transformed Kenneth Branagh into the bard himself. Plus, he weighs in on the rumors that the mysterious dark lady in Shakespeare's love sonnets might not have been a lady at all, the sex scandals that embroiled Shakespeare's family during his final years, and the nagging speculation that Shakespeare's plays weren't actually written by William Shakespeare. Coming up with Sir Kenneth Branagh in just a moment.
Academy Award nominee Sir Kenneth Branagh is arguably the greatest living interpreter of the works of William Shakespeare, having directed and starred in many of Shakespeare's plays on stage and brought six of Shakespeare's plays to the big screen. Now, at long last, he plays the Bard of Avon himself in a film which he produced and directed called All is True. It opens in New York and Los Angeles this Friday, May 10th. Sir Kenneth Branagh, thanks for joining me. Thank you. I love the film, and you. you have had a lifelong relationship with the works of William Shakespeare. Oh. How far back does this passion for Shakespeare go with you? Well, it goes back to a crazy moment, really, watching a variety show on television in about 1968. <laughs> Peter Sellers, the late great comedian and actor, was impersonating Laurence Olivier, who was playing Richard III, and he performed the lyrics of the Beatles song, It's Been a Hard Day's Night. And I remember, so it went, it's been a hard day's night, and I've been working like a dog. It's been a hard day's night, I should be sleeping like a log. I said to my dad, what's going on here? He said, oh, that's that's Peter Sellers impersonating Laurence Olivier, who's impersonating Richard III. It's Shakespeare. It's Shakespeare. <laughs> I said, that's, wow, Shakespeare's weird. Shakespeare does the Beatles. Uh, it made me realize that whether we liked it or not, in the UK, Shakespeare was somehow wrapped up in, in our culture. Cut to maybe five years later and a school trip to see Romeo and Juliet. Our previous experience of Shakespeare had been reading it aloud in school. That was terrible, boring, nobody understood it. But the live thing, the lights went up and the sword started clashing. The sparks were coming off the blades and it was Romeo and Juliet. It was a street fight. That stopped and then this beautiful woman walked on the stage and uh, the guy was smitten with her and so were a thousand other kids um, in the auditorium. And suddenly Shakespeare Live with sex and violence looked pretty good. Really brought it to life. Mm -hmm. You're a generation or two removed from Olivier, Gilgood, Guinness, and that iconic generation of actors who first introduced many people to Shakespeare on the big screen. When you were a young man coming up in the theater, I suppose in your 20s or teens, did you look at them with great reverence or was there a part of you that wanted to rebel against that previous generation? What I think I did feel was just that Shakespeare uh, seemed to swing so wildly between experiences that were really... Uh, not easy to watch or absorb, and and ones that were you know fiery and brilliant and really made such impact. I mean, way back, I'd suggest one that made a great impact was Joseph Mankiewicz's film of Julius Caesar. It starred yeah. Marlon Brando, who at that time was the recognized the, the most sort of famous actor in the world for his method technique, um, you know Stanislavski technique from the Actors Studio in New York, edgy, rough, sexy, and he gave an amazing performance as Mark Antony, charismatic and brilliant and, and in a terrific movie that was also full of some terrific English actors, James Mason and and uh, John Gielgud, who you mentioned. Um, I always just thought that it, there was nothing to rebel against except the stuff that was self-indulgent. You, you had to really take Shakespeare to the people. Brando's performance was electric, vulnerable, sexy, and I realized that that's what you should aim for with Shakespeare. That's what he had in the fabric of what he wrote, and we shouldn't settle for the silly voiced kind of grand this is going to be good for you you're eating your cultural spinach kind of shakespeare <laughs> right. that was also possible right right and shakespeare was for the people yes you know, was he, a popular he wasn't a highbrow crowd that usually went to see his play right? to everybody he played yeah. to high and low and he i think as a writer he observed high and low i think he was uh, i think he was the kind of guy who would like just blend in and you know people trusted him he's described by colleagues as gentle as modest i think he was a clearly a fantastic listener and um, 
But he he also was uh, uh, in his own theatre, the Globe Theatre, which burns down at the beginning of our film of All Is True. It's June 1613. But he's had 20 years of being a producer, a writer, a director, and an actor. So in, in an organisation, they had to be so commercially savvy. They had to not only produce their great art, but they had to respond to what the public wanted. You actually played Sir Lawrence Olivier in My Week with Marilyn a few years ago, and now you're playing another hero of yours, and all is true. Was it daunting to step into the shoes of someone you've admired for so long? In a way, it was an act of thanks. It was an act of gratitude, a debt of gratitude paid, really, because some of what we've spoken about, this desire to remind people and let them enjoy and be comforted by and, and, and sort of reassured by the fact of Shakespeare's own humanity. So I, for me, he'd, he'd become a friend. You know, the, the, uh, the Shakespeare that I hear and feel through the work that uh, I've done, from the very moment that I hitchhiked to his hometown of Stratford-upon-Avon when I was 17 years old and pitched a tent a mile outside the town and went to see the places that he lived in and the plays that he wrote, I sensed a benign, a kind spirit, someone who um, I didn't always agree with. There are plays of his that are, you know, have unsavory elements to them. Uh, that are unpalatable to us these days. But in the vast majority of his work, there's a kind of consideration and a reflection on the, the human condition that I find really inspiring. And, um, and so he's always been a friend to me. So to play him was in a way to help at least show uh, from my humble position uh, my version of what this friend has been to me uh, to the world because I think he has been a friend to the world. And uh, But once again to reassure them that this is not a man who arrived looking like Buddha or Jesus, only full of wise instances and stuff. He was a human being and part of why he wrote so well was because his life was probably as messed up as ours. So much of Shakespeare's personal life is a mystery, and there remain so many questions about him, ranging from the speculative to just outright conspiracy theories. Did you begin the project with any ideas about whether you wanted to stick to the established biography versus where you could take some creative license? We did take some creative license, but our essential starting point was to believe for the purposes of this film in The Man from Stratford. Mm -hmm. uh, Roland Emmerich made a terrific film called Anonymous, suggesting that the Earl of South, uh, the Earl of Oxford rather, had written the plays of Shakespeare. Beautifully explained, beautifully done, terrific movie. This, this goes in a different direction, uh, and it takes the facts of the life from The Man from Stratford, and then it, it, it takes some license. So we do begin with real fire happens at real time. He goes back to real Stratford where real records tell us that the daughters are involved in sexual scandal, where we're reminded again in the parish register that his son died in 1596, aged 11 years old. And we also are aware of other things that are facts, Shakespeare dedicating the uh, sonnets that he wrote to the Earl of Southampton and his narrative poem, The Venus and Adonis, both rather extravagantly enough to suggest that perhaps there was even a romantic quality to his admiration. So right. we start by um, riffing on that theme, if you like. So the idea that Southampton was a, a romantic figure from the past and the idea that there might be a mystery behind the death of Hamnet, uh, Shakespeare's son. Those were the places where we started to speculate. Uh, yeah, there's long been speculation that his sonnets in which he talks about, quote, a dark lady and a fair youth were written to a woman other than his wife, and perhaps not a woman at all, but a man, according to some theories. You strongly allude to the latter possibility in this movie. What informed your own take on this mystery person? 
The uh, theories about who the fair youth is and who the dark lady is are extensive, uh, but they're partly prompted by what you can't deny, which is the immensely personal, emotional quality in some of the the sonnets. Where it, it, aside from the the um, the poetic design to to produce something beautiful within this fourteen line structure, there's also a passionate personal plea that is a declaration of of um, love, sometimes a declaration of lust. Um, we felt that it at least justified the idea that if they were very personally felt and meant that to introduce them in the relationship, possible latter relationship with the Earl of Southampton, that that, that idea of a last hurrah, a last supernova of romance, take me away from here, we'll, all, we'll yeah. always have London, he might have said to yeah. the Earl of Southampton, would be a a bit of a hand grenade to throw into the household of a Shakespeare whose wife, Anne Hathaway, has had to put up with the notion of those rumours about that very thing surrounding the publication of the sonnets from a man who has been out of her life for a large part of those 20 years. So the um, the tensions uh, that, that, that the sonnets and their potential dedicatee uh, might have produced in the Shakespeare household seem to us to be a, a really rich source of dramatic tension. And you give an interesting glimpse into this relationship between Shakespeare and his wife, Anne, played by the marvelous Judy Dench. Anne was illiterate, apparently, mm -hmm. which isn't unusual for a woman of her day, but it's hard for us to imagine the world's greatest man of letters married to someone who couldn't read and write. Do you think some of the friction in their marriage was the result of this intellectual gulf between them? Well, I don't know that it represented an intellectual gulf. Really? Um, uh, no, because I, I think that although she may not have been lettered in the way that Shakespeare himself, who would also, people claim, uh, have been imperfectly so schooled. We don't know absolutely that he went to the grammar school. We know he had access to libraries, but but um, uh, I, would, I, would, I suppose I would say, I would characterize um, the, the difference not extending to the area of intelligence. I could well imagine a shared intelligence, even if, um, and perhaps even a shared cerebral quality, but in terms of sheer intellectual heft, heft regarding access to specific ideas, he probably had the upper hand in that regard. But what Ben Elton does in his screenplay for both Anne Hathaway and for Judith Shakespeare is to give them voice, is to suggest that the literally the lack of words does not imply lack of feeling, lack of complexity, lack of in, in, intelligent emotionally intelligent understanding of what a man like Shakespeare could be, who, as we suggest, comes back to a Stratford where, although a local celebrity, the f most famous son of the town, coming back to what you might expect to be a sort of grand homecoming, uh, this is a man who insists on buying a coat of arms that allows him to be called gentleman, his, his sense of his own position perhaps not so secure as the world yeah. might think. And this is something I think that Anne and Judith Shakespeare might very well have understood and, and given as good as they got when it came to an argument about it. Yeah, I didn't realize that he had amassed a considerable fortune. And it's funny because for such a romantic, I was surprised that he placed so much stock in having financial wealth and property and servants and building up his family name and caring what other people thought about him. What do you suppose was behind that insecurity? His father was a prominent Stratford um, uh, uh, merchant, a businessman, a glove maker who became mayor of Stratford and then suffered a financial crash. Um, he was made bankrupt. There was a great um, disgrace. I think he felt that very keenly. It was a very litigious society. You needed to be front-footed. People snitched on people. There were all sorts of 
issues about property deals in the area, about the extension of roadways from London to Stratford. All of these were tied up in commerce. Deals were done and undone, not always uh, uh, above board. And you couldn't be a moneyed person in that time and not know about them, or indeed not feel potentially insecure. So I think Shakespeare had to have a robust attitude to the realities of uh, commercial life at the time. And um, I think one of the things that is interesting about Shakespeare is that for those who want a glamorous writer who is mad, bad and dangerous to know, they have this rather perplexing idea of a man who is interested in his mortgage, um, who fulfills maybe Flaubert's idea of of the creative life, where he said... You need to be bourgeois in your private life and revolutionary in your creative life, your artistic life. And perhaps Shakespeare fulfilled that brief, um, but it's not necessarily the way people would like their geniuses. We're going to take a quick break, and then I'll be back with more with Sir Kenneth Branagh when we come back in just a minute. Zebit believes that everyone deserves access to lifelong interest-free credit. With Zebit, you have the power to buy what you need and pay over time interest-free. Zebit provides a better zero-interest credit option for all members, no matter your credit score. With Zebit, there's zero cost to join, zero membership fees, and zero late fees. Your Zebit account is not determined by your credit score, and your Zebit account doesn't impact your credit score. Zebit has more than 50,000 products in their marketplace, and brand names like Xbox, Sony, Apple, GoPro, and Fitbit, all at competitive prices. From electronics to barbecues, furniture, and more, Zebit has everything you need for when you need it. Zebit has a five-star rating on Trustpilot, and they've earned the trust of hundreds of thousands of customers who shop on Zebit. Now, I had to go on Zebit to check this out for myself because it almost sounded a little too good to be true. But I went on their site, and it's true. Zero interest-free financing, no sign-up fees, no late fees, no credit check. Plus, they have a huge selection of products from iPads and the latest TVs to appliances, clothing, gift cards, and more. And at comparable prices to what you'd pay on Amazon or other sites. I know because I actually compared. Sign up for Zebit today at zebit.com slash kick and get $2,500 credit to shop the Zebit marketplace at zero interest and zero cost to join. So if you've been saving up for that brand new laptop or that designer purse you've had your eye on, you owe it to yourself to go check out the deals at Zebit. That's zebit, Z-E-B-I-T dot com slash kick for $2,500 of interest-free credit. One more time, zebit.com slash kick. If you don't know SiriusXM, then listen up. SiriusXM brings the deepest variety of commercial-free music for every genre and for every mood, where you hear the biggest names in talk, entertainment, and comedy, where you get news from every source. Now, I know what you're thinking. Don't you need a car to enjoy SiriusXM? A lot of people think that, but you don't. You can listen outside of the car. And right now, you can get your first three months of SiriusXM outside the car for just $1. Just go to SiriusXM slash kick to see offer details and to subscribe. For one buck, you can listen to SiriusXM on your phone, at home, and online. So anywhere you are, any time of day, you can hear your favorite songs or discover new ones. Go to Sirius, S-I-R-I-U-S, X-M dot com slash kick and get your first three months of SiriusXM outside the car for $1. 
See offer details, offer available to new SiriusXM streaming subscribers. SiriusXM, no car required. And now, back to the show. It's also an interesting period when he returns from London to Stratford because he's coming back to his hometown when it's a hotbed of Puritan zealotry and neighbors are very quick to condemn anything that doesn't fit their idea of Christian morals, including the theater. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's it's uh, an extremely dangerous place to be. People tell tales. In this case and in the film, we see a man called John Lane stands up in church, he really did, in 1613 and accuses Susanna Shakespeare in front of Shakespeare of being a whore and of having gonorrhea uh, the matter is recorded and made public. It would have been the talk, the talk of Stratford. Wow. And um, the same thing happened in the sexual scandal concerning his second daughter who married to a man who six weeks later it was discovered had had sex out of wedlock with Margaret Wheeler with whom he had had a child. She died with the child in wedlock. And once again, punishment was meted out to Shakespeare's son-in-law very publicly and conspicuously. And you give a, an interesting window into Shakespeare's relationship with both of his daughters, I once heard someone say that his daughter Judith was the strong-headed one who waited to marry and was most like him. Do you think that's true? It could very possibly be. The, uh, there are also descriptions of Susanna, um, the, the, the older, as, 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 as of having more than an uncommon wit. Um, she married a doctor. You could say she'd sort of, sort of moved up in the world and you know, acquired yet more sort of prestige they had a daughter elizabeth um and uh judith of course had three children all of whom died young um yes it's 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 hard to say where where the characteristics of their father landed but certainly in those who wrote about him the word that that uh, the words that uh, frequently are used to describe him are gentle and modest And another aspect of this that's interesting in these last three years is it's not until this moment when he finally takes the time to mourn his only son, Hamnet, who had died, I think, what, seven or eight years prior? 1596, yeah. Why did he wait so long to come to terms with that loss? Well, I think that the scar of a lost child um, takes an age to heal. As Judy Dench's Anne Hathaway says to him... um, when he suggests that he has mourned his son, uh, and she says, well, you mourn him now, but at the time you wrote The Merry Wives of Windsor, <laughs> that Shakespeare's process was to go to work, to go creative work, perhaps for a sort of supreme distraction. And uh, and in so doing, um, potentially suppresses, is what we suggest, uh, something that, surfaces in his work so in his plays that which has not been processed uh, uh, arrives in in the subject matter of a play like the winter's tale or or in the way he's unable to resolve questions between father and daughter in the tempest or other yeah. other, other late plays it seems as as though the work was a was a sort of cathartic therapeutic place for that but once back in the home where that family have seen you only as an absentee and temporary visitor across 20 years uh, the questions about it in both directions are going to come thick and fast. It's an interesting dynamic because, again, this is seven or eight years after his death, and the family has moved on. They have grieved him, and they're finally getting their lives back together. Mm -hmm. And here he comes, and he wants to grieve all of a sudden and drag them back into that after all those years. Yes, life and and 
that processing was uh, was on hold for him, I suppose. And yes, one thing they stop is the idea that he will come back to uh, build in some sort of um, wise, sagacious, uh, or in their view, pompous way, a memorial garden for his son. And now, yeah. now he has time to mourn. And this is not something they find acceptable. In the film, Shakespeare is seen as having placed all of his hopes and dreams in Hamnet as his only son and the one who would have carried on his legacy. Is there evidence in letters or accounts of conversations that he saw Hamnet as his literary heir apparent? Uh, not necessarily. More in the plays do we see the hopes of father for sons across uh, you know numerous instances where we can understand the sort of primacy of the patriarchy enshrined in the in the you know political and religious uh, institutions of the time and the social conventions of the time um but that's 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 in in expressed sometimes in in ludicrously um uh over expectation of children but also of, of very indulgent and 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 loving forms of the same thing um in terms of literature that talks about his uh, his family. No, we have very little that, that seems to, with the exception of a, a court case in which he gave evidence where if the deposition that's written down um, is accurate, is, is, is possibly one of the few times we understand how Shakespeare spoke. But it was in a bit of litigation, so it was subject to a certain kind of legalese, but uh, otherwise, no. Well, certainly the culture of the day would have dictated that a father would have placed all of his hopes on the son to carry on a legacy like mm -hmm, that. Mm -hmm. And in true Shakespearean fashion, you have Hamnet appear to him as a ghost. I love that because it's sort of the reverse of Shakespeare's plays. You have the son now haunting the father. Mm -hmm. I think this was a very um, sort of beautifully Shakespearean idea that, that uh, Ben Elton excavated from, from the nearness of the names Hamnet and Hamlet. And, and also, as, as, as the film unfolds, there's also a question mark about how the idea of drowning and suicide, again alluded to in Hamlet, may have some weird play in the in the lives of the, the the contemporary Shakespeare family. All is true is written by Ben Elton, as you just mentioned, who also happens to be the creator of Upstart Crow, the popular British sitcom about Shakespeare. He's also written for Black Adder and other comedies. What gave you the confidence that he had the chops to take on a more serious portrayal of Shakespeare? He. Um, is someone I've known whose work I've known for the last 30 odd years and uh, I've always known that he is a, a brilliant writer politically astute and and uh, I think um, something of a prophet in his uh, ability to uh, look at the present and to some extent predict the future um, but certainly in social political terms always through the lens of comedy uh, but like most great comedians um, it's a detailed and, and uh, um, sensitive um, response to the world that he provides, and it can be uh, dramatic as well. And I, I longed for him to uh, let that play prominently. Um, and so I said to him when we, when I pitched him the idea of how we would, what bit of Shakespeare we'd look at, I said, you don't have to write any gags. It'll end up being full of the humor that he has absolutely as natural. Uh, and indeed the Shakespeare has, we think. But um, it was the idea of releasing somebody who could, who was free of the burden of producing gags and a comic structure, and and instead was trying to look look inside the man rather than looking for uh, uh, comedy from outside. 
And I was also surprised at the dialogue in the film. It's not the flowery high English that we're used to in Shakespeare's plays. It's more colloquial, I suppose, country English. Do you think that that was more authentic to how Shakespeare would have spoken outside of his own plays? Well, we of course can't say with any accuracy, but I, I suppose what we what we might suppose is that people spoke to themselves to each other with a directness. They mm. did not they did not speak as if they were characters in plays. Even even though the language of the day might have been formal, still the human connection in asking a question would would i think have been without mainly without artifice even even with the sort of social conventions there would be a directness which is what we sought in the language here to to at all times be looking to stress our look at Shakespeare the man not the genius and where did you film this because i've been to stratford on avon and there are no open spaces left <laughs> like course. we see in the film. Oh, of course, of course. I mean, really, actually, one of the few open spaces in Stratford is at the back of New Place, the uh, the site of Shakespeare's house, but with a large garden that goes down to the back of the theatre and the river. Uh, we shot near Windsor, in uh, which is uh, about 30 miles, 25 miles from London, and in a, in a house of the period. So um, it was absolutely... Um, around at Shakespeare's uh, time, and we um, created our Stratford around there. And one of the things that really shines through in this movie is your appreciation for classic cinema processes. In fact, you even use matte painting instead of digital effects. Mm. You shoot the movie in cinescope. You don't overdo it with a lot of frenetic camera movement. You seem to have a real reverence for the old ways of movie making. As a filmmaker, do you mourn the fact that the digital age has overtaken so many of the techniques of film that make it film and that now we have so many people who are just watching a movie on their TV screens instead of going to the theater? I, I don't know. I, I, I acknowledge that all of those things are, are uh, occurring, but I, I, I also, um, and I'm not the only one, um, enjoy so enormously the process of uh, making cinema and going to the cinema and, and being as creative as you can with all kinds of techniques, be they digital or film techniques, uh, that um, I think there are, there are cycles in, in the way such techniques are used and in the way the imagination of filmmakers you know, goes forward or back in, in, in using whatever might be new, novel, or even just right for any particular bit of storytelling. Um, that some of it is under threat is okay. That's just the, the way of the world. It can make people like me or people like Christopher Nolan hang on for film and 65 mil and big, unique experiences like IMAX. Um, these, are all, these are all things that uh, it's good to have people involved who've got some fire in their belly about them. And I think uh, audiences in the end will, will, will go back to them or include them in that which they like to see as long as it's good. Yeah, and I really love the look of the film. The matte painting and just the lighting of it really has a very painterly effect. Yeah, there was an intention really to have the daytime scenes um, be inspired by Vermeer and the nighttime scenes inspired by Rembrandt. Our ambitions were lofty um, and uh, our determination to try and stick to that complicated uh, ambition but 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 simple intent uh was beautifully brought off by zach nicholson our cinematographer i can't think of a movie where you've worn as much makeup mm -hmm. as you do in this film though you didn't just don a fancy wig and call yourself william shakespeare you really committed you transformed <laughs> yourself into the man how did you decide what you wanted your shakespeare to look like 
Well, in a way, I wanted him to look like the way the world saw him. So the famous Chandos portrait in the National Portrait Gallery in London, uh, painted, we think, by John Taylor in, in about 1608. And we think, from what evidence can be uh, accumulated, um, that Shakespeare is most likely to have sat for it. And um, what strikes me when you go and see and stand in front of that picture is the, is the liveliness in the eyes um, a teasing quality, I think, uh, provocative and wry, kind, compassionate. That's what I, I felt. Uh, but the outside was as, as the world knows him. And I, it seemed to me that I wanted to get rid of me, give the world what they thought he was like, and then try and surprise by bringing the man and his inner life uh, to, to bear and, um, and, 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 and let them see the, the contradiction or the juxtaposition or whatever you like to... You call it between the man they're used to seeing on the tea towel um, <laughs> actually be a, a living human being. Now, I want to go back to probably the most controversial question that's hung over Shakespeare, this speculation that some or all of his plays might not have been written by him, but by anyone from Christopher Marlowe to Francis Bacon. There's a great scene in All is True where Shakespeare is approached by a fan, and he seems to indirectly address some of these theories. Do you personally have any doubts as to the authorship of his works? I think it's impossible not to have uh, uh, considerations about about uh, w you know what little we know. I personally love Shakespeare's elusiveness. Um, I am drawn to the idea of the man from Stratford, but it depends on where you come from. I, I come from a working class background where the idea of um, somebody coming from a so-called lowly circumstances and and attaining a sort of creative or worldly dream that seemed a very, very long way from what was possible for them uh, is a sort of uh, attractive idea. Um, I resist the idea that all art is autobiographical um, because I think um, I see in my daily work the triumph of the imagination. I see people thinking and imagining things that they have no direct experience of but that they are brilliantly evocative uh, in their storytelling with. Um, but at the same time, I'm completely... Um, uh, drawn into the many um, academically sound and uh, theories and sometimes fantastic conspiracy theories about, about how these plays might have been written by multiple pens uh, or a, a single um, carefully sort of uh, protected uh, identity. Um, this started with a look at what facts remained of the man from Stratford and, and a suggestion of how, how that journey might have eventually ended up. So you didn't feel any obligation to come to his defense and set the record straight with this movie? No, because I think you can't, and I don't mind that you can't. You know, it's for me, it's uh, the the work is all, and um, this film is it just in the tradition of the many, many thousands and thousands of tangential creative responses to either the work of this man or the life of this man or the physical location of this man. Um, he 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 inspires other creativity and this is another example of that but I, I don't need to persuade or convince anybody like Shakespeare who provided titles like um, As You Like It or Twelfth Night or What You Will Much Do About Nothing there's a sort of a whatever or a shrug in, in, his, um, in his own output and we, we land firmly in that department when we take the very title from our film which is the alternative title for um, you know, his life of Henry VIII. He couldn't possibly have known everything that he suggests does go on in that play, and yet he chooses to call it 
all is true. He knows and we know that that's not the case. But uh, maybe there are different ways of thinking about truth. In these last three years of his life, it's interesting because he's he's not a particularly old man by today's standards. I think he died at 52, yet he decides to retire from the stage. Why do you suppose he decided to do that? I think 20 years and 37 plays, uh, possibly of his own <laughs> or, or other people's. Takes a toll. Huh? Uh, takes its toll. And, uh, you know, plague and fire and the circumstances of... Uh, uh, you know, sanitation in Elizabethan London and uh, the diet and uh, um, the not just his own work, but the work of every contemporary playwright was produced at the Globe. That will have been a working life of really significant mm-hmm. intensity. Well, before we go, I have to ask you one non-Shakespeare related question, just because I'm also a big Agatha Christie fan. Will you be returning to the screen as Poirot, and will it be Death on the Nile? This is correct, yeah. We start shooting at the end of the summer. Michael Green, who wrote the screenplay for our recent Murder on the Orient Express, has produced another brilliant uh, account of this fascinating, lusty movie. Excellent. Can't wait for it. And I really enjoyed All is True. It opens in L.A. and New York beginning Friday, May 10th. Sir Kenneth Branagh, thanks so much for talking with me. Thank you. Thanks again to Sir Kenneth Branagh for coming on the podcast. His film All Is True opens in New York and L.A. Friday, May 10th, followed by a wide release. Check your local listings for theaters and showtimes. Today's episode was sponsored by SoBob Podcast. What is technology doing to us? How does it affect our ability to work, to be present, to connect to one another? Podcaster Aliyah Tavakolian wonders about these things all the time, and tech journalist Bob Sullivan has spent his life finding the answers. Their new podcast, So Bob, is your opportunity to ask, So Bob, how can I live a better digital life? Follow So Bob on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. If you don't know SiriusXM, then listen up. Commercial-free music, plus sports, talk, comedy, and news, they have it all. And right now, you can get your first three months of SiriusXM outside the car for just $1. Go to SiriusXM.com kick to see offer details and subscribe. That's Sirius, S-I-R-I-U-S, X-M, dot com slash kick. Offer available to new SiriusXM streaming subscribers. SiriusXM. No car required. Be sure to subscribe to Kick-Ass News on Apple Podcasts if you haven't already. And if you like what you're hearing, then rate and review us while you're there. Five-star reviews are the easiest way for new listeners to find us. Don't forget to like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at at KickAssNewsPod. And feel free to email me with your thoughts, questions, and suggestions at comments at kickassnews.com. Until next time, I'm Ben Mathis, and thanks for listening to Kick-Ass News. Cast News is a trademark of Mathis Entertainment, Inc.